across the course of these 300 years, she really has learned to value what is truly meaningful to her. And I think that that's given her new perspective and appreciation on every aspect of importance in life. Yeah. So I see it as prescriptive. However, this is what Savannah and I were debating. What does that mean? That it's okay to make a deal with the devil? <laughs> yeah. We went back and like forth that. about this too. Hey friends, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent for their business and writing career, or teach them how to write the best manuscript possible by polishing a manuscript that hooks their dream agent. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is eager to help you learn how to blend passion with business through conversations with literary agents to understand the publishing industry and craft-based discussions like first-chapter deep-dive analysis and interviews with authors followed by writing exercises. Before we get into today's episode, I have something special to share with you and wanted to let you know that Savannah and I have a virtual book club designed specifically for fiction writers. The goal of this book club is to help all writers really learn how to master their craft. And if you enjoy any of the first chapter deep dive analysis episodes, if you've been listening to Lit Match for a while, where I do team up with a book coach, especially those Harry Potter episodes with Savannah, then you're going to love our book clubs. Here's a little bit more about them, as well as what you can expect in today's episode. The book club is called Book Notes, and our focus is simple. We all read the same book with an analytical eye in order to learn how to read like a writer. And then we engage in a craft-based discussion to A, have fun, and B, study and understand what makes a bestseller. Savannah and I have tons to share and teach at each meeting, but we also always make it a priority to make each discussion as interactive and engaging as possible. We want you to participate in every discussion. And if you're interested and you want to attend, but unfortunately, the meeting date doesn't line up with your schedule, or maybe you don't have time to read the book beforehand. Don't worry about it. Anyone who signs up will get a recording of the meeting so you can watch it at your convenience. Plus, Savannah and I always welcome a continued discussion, and we take any email that gives us questions or recommendations about the meetings very seriously. We had so much fun at our last two meetings, and we got several requests for a mystery thriller. Naturally, that's the genre that we picked for our next breakdown. This month, our book club pick is the best-selling novel, The Guest List, by Lucy Foley. I really enjoyed the downward spiral, the setting of the story, and the multitude of skeletons that continued to pile on the more we learned about each character. Needless to say, there's a lot to discuss about this story, and Savannah and I have spent quite a bit of time selecting specific fiction elements that we think this book has to teach and offer. Our next meeting is coming up quick. It's on March 16, 2023 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. If you want to join us or if you want to learn more about how the book club works, go ahead and check out the book notes page on Savannah's website, www.savannagilbo.com book club. And to give you a small taste of what some of her book club meetings include, we pulled a small bit of our first chapter deep dive analysis from our last book club pick, one of my favorite novels of all time, 
The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by P.E. Schwab. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have fun with it. When we're looking at the first chapter, we like to give a summary of the first chapter. And then if you've listened to either of our podcasts, you listen to the Harry Potter episodes with the first chapters, we do a scene breakdown. So this book club, last book club, we did the big picture questions and the scene breakdown. We actually are switching up the format a bit. We're going to do the scene breakdown first. I'll give a summary and then we'll head into the five commandments and what makes it a well-structured scene that hooks us in that first chapter. Chapter one opens up on March 10, 2014 in New York City. A young woman named Addie LaRue wakes up next to a songwriter named Toby. Though they have spent many nights together, he never remembers her in the morning. This is because Addie has a curse that grants her eternal life, but makes it impossible for anyone to remember her the moment she leaves their presence. Embarrassed, Toby assumes that he got too drunk to remember going home with Addie, and meanwhile, Addie plays a song on the piano that Toby does not remember, but they've been working on in writing over the past few dates. Without the ability to bring pen to paper herself, this is how Addie leads her mark over the years by inspiring artists and musicians. Right. And so, so yeah, go ahead, Abigail. Then what we do here when we're looking at the well-structured scene, these are some, these are what we call the five commandments of storytelling. We've pulled them from two big resources, Robert McKee's story and the story grid. So both of these use the five commandments and it helps us understand why a scene has changed because at its very core, a story and a scene needs to change. We need to see that the plot is moving forward and that characters are being developed. And through that change, we can identify if a scene works. So we'll go ahead and break down what those commandments are, if you're unfamiliar with them, and specify how we think the scene applies to them. So before we do any of that, we like to talk about what the character's goal is. And knowing a character's goal is essential to understanding if a scene is well-structured, because having a goal creates agency in a, in a scene and in a story. In this scene, Addie's goal is to leave Toby's apartment before he wakes. Part of the reason for this goal is because Addie understands that he won't remember her. And that can be very painful. So we're going to actually look at a very internally driven scene here, as well as how it, those internal shifts impact those big external value shifts, which we'll talk about in a second. For an inciting incident, an inciting incident is either causal or coincidental, which means that either a person causes an unexpected disturbance that either establishes the goal or changes the way the character can approach achieving their goal, or it's coincidental, meaning coincidence does the same thing. And in this case, what we say, Savannah? We said that this is when Toby begins to stir in bed because this talks directly to that goal of she knows she needs to leave or she wants to leave before he wakes up. So when he starts to stir, she knows the time is ticking. Okay. That creates an even more sense of urgency in what she's trying to achieve. The turning point is the peak progressive complication. So some people might call this progressive complication turning point. Savannah and I like to abbreviate it to turning point because I see it as separate from other progressive complications in the sense that a turning point is an action, a revelation that forces a character into a crisis decision. And the combination of a turning point and a crisis is ultimately what causes change in a scene. So this turning point, the action or revelation in the scene that forces Addie into a crisis decision, I'll explain what a crisis is right now, a crisis decision or otherwise known as a dilemma is a best bad choice 
or an irreconcilable goods decision, so two equally weighted bad or good decisions that a character cannot avoid. Even to do nothing is going to end in consequences. Consequences can be good, they can be bad. You know, so just thinking about what type of crisis that is. So the turning point in this scene is what, Savannah? The turning point is when she officially hears that Toby's getting up. So she's in the living room at the piano at this stage, and she's like, oh, I, he's actually getting up. What am I going to do? So her choice is, at that point, should I run and try to trap their moment together in Amber? That's in the actual text. Or should she stay and face him not remembering? Either way, it's not ideal, but one is less painful than the other. And then the climax is the direct action that we see based on the character's crisis. So how the crisis, how the character, the main character of the scene responds to their crisis displays the climax. And the climactic action is that she stays and she braces herself for that look on his face. And after climax, now everything comes resolution. And resolution, sometimes known as denouement, is allowing the readers to see where the character sits at the end of the scene, all the results that follow after the crisis is made in the climax. So we start to see with evidence that the scene has has created a value change on both an interior level and a character level and on an external level. Right. And so the resolution here is we see that, as expected, Toby does not remember her. They talk about the music. So Addie reteaches him their song. And she promises to go see his band play later, even though she knows he's not going to remember her. And so what has changed in this scene is that if Addie had left, it could have remained a beautiful memory. It could have been not forgotten. But then when she decided to stay, it, it changed the value to now she's definitely forgotten. She's making empty promises and she's hurt. It was like the possibility of hurt to actual hurt. And I just like to say, and we'll talk about this later when we get into the breakdown of the structure of the whole story, but this is a significant moment to establish Caddy, not, I mean, Caddy, to establish (laughs) Addie, not only in her place, but it creates this question of how did she come to be this way, which is going to be significant in why we create past and present timelines in this story. And also, Toby is not just a random character that we won't see again. He actually does come back into the plot later at a pivotal moment where Addie is feeling like things are going well. And that significance of having him not just be random, having be someone that she did care about, that she did work with over and over again, but was forgotten constantly is is paramount to us understanding why being forgotten is such a lonely and painful way of living. Right. I'm curious. Let us know in the chat if you guys analyzed this. Did you get the same at least kind of idea that we got? Doesn't have to be exactly the same. And then I'll go ahead and read this question from Peter because it's about the scene. He says, if her goal is to leave Toby's apartment before he wakes, why would she linger and play the piano? Could the goal be to have one more beautiful encounter or could it be something else like that? So I'll give my two cents. We see in the text that she's pondering this idea of I need to leave because I don't want to see his face. So she she does say that internally. But in theory, the goal could be that she lingers because she wants to have an encounter. Let's say if if he was going to remember and this was a normal, quote unquote, relationship, that would be a totally plausible goal. Do you have anything to add, Abigail? Yeah, I think it's just like anything with temptation with people. Ultimately, we know that there are certain things that we shouldn't do, but we have a longing to do them anyway for whatever reason. And in this case, I think this is actually really crucial of seeing why Addie lingers 
speaks to her character development quite a bit because it showed it shows us her desperation to have something meaningful. And really, she's beginning the story in a life of meaninglessness. What brings her the smallest sense of joy is music. And here's a piano that she has access to. And, you know, it's something that she can spend some time with. And she knows as soon as she leaves that apartment, she starts over again. Right. And that's exhausting. I think that's exhausting. So I think ultimately she knows she wants to get out of this apartment before he wakes up because it's painful to see someone that she actually does have feelings for constantly forget her. At the same time, she has nowhere else to go. Right. So, and she would hold on to every moment she could. Well, and a lot of people too are saying in the chat that they they got the feeling that she holds out for hope even though she knows it's unlikely. And I think that is a key part of Addie. She's optimistic. She's somewhere in her mind kind of believes or hopes that she's going to best this curse, even if she's mm-hmm. not consciously thinking that way. Bree says it gives a picture of why she's a bit jaded, even though she's a romantic. Um, mm-hmm. Since Shell said it seems like she was weighing the need to give him their song. So her goal of being remembered, but it's the pain of it that she wants to avoid. Yes. And all of that, I think, is valid. So if you guys are picking that up, that's perfect. Um, yeah. And Alice, hi, Alice. I see you in the chat. She says, I agree. I think she wanted to contribute a little bit more to the song. And if she left, she'd save herself the pain. Yeah. So it's this is her thing throughout the story. It's pain or trying to leave my mark. And most of the time she can't get what she wants both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in our, we have a Q&A or a question in the Q&A. Abdul says, I missed the beginning. Are these points necessary for every single scene or only the initial scene? Every scene. So all scenes are about change. So we need to see that there's a value change, which means that there's going to be a change in character internally, and there's going to be a change externally. And both of these changes will speak to how it influences and impacts the big picture change. So we always, on a scene level, are looking for the idea of, does the scene change? And if the scene changes, is it also influencing or impacting the big picture change? They have to work together. If they don't work together, then it's probably a scene that you can be, that doesn't have significance, right? The other thing that I like to say about scenes is that when we're looking for this source of change, that's important and valuable. And we don't necessarily, you and I might not necessarily come up with the exact same perfect words to describe the change. And I always emphasize to everyone, don't get caught up on trying to find the perfect words. Sometimes I just have to even describe the beginning change, the end change. But being able to describe that there is a change can help me defend if there's intention and purpose and story movement and character movement in a scene because of the scene event or if there are issues in the scene. Yeah. And Nick says in the Q&A, Toby had a recognition of the song when Addie first played it. So yeah, he was... Either he recognized a colonel or he was just really intrigued. And he's like, what is that? He wants more. And she was like, you taught it to me last night, remember? And, you know, he's still thinking, oh, well, we were drunk. I don't know if I remember. So, yeah. So I think as long as um, it's interesting. Which is a great setup, just to point out real quick, because that's a really great setup to show that she does have a way. There is a loophole possibility. Like you can understand why she'd have hope because there is a loophole in this curse and that she can make some marks in some way, just not through her own actions. It has right. to be through others. Right. I'm interested because we're talking a lot about the goals, but how did you guys view like that turning point crisis moment? Did you think that that was the moment things changed or did you guys see something different? Because I'm trying to think what else we could say in the scene, maybe say something around the song. Was it when they started playing the song? 
in theory, it that there's a change there, right? Because Toby didn't know that part and now he's learning it. I think we're all we're all kind of seeing that it needs to be around this ability to make a mark and this pain that she feels. So I think that's great that we're all kind of coming to the same thing here. Because there was that question about scenes. The other thing that I had on the top of my head that I forgot to say is that Savannah and I like to also emphasize that scenes are not the same thing as chapters. In this case, there is one scene, one chapter. But in some cases, there might be a scene over a couple chapters or partial chapters. But it's important if you're plotting out your story to plot in scenes versus chapters. Yep. And so for this next part, we're going to go into some questions that we like to look at for our opening chapters or our scenes. But we also use these to kind of just talk through the big picture. So all these questions come from Paula Meunier's The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. It's a great book. And the first question here is, what genre is this? So we're going to talk about genre in two different ways. We're going to talk about the commercial genre. So this is like the sales or that marketing category. And then the content genres or what type of content actually makes up a book. So if you look on Amazon, Addie LaRue is marketed as a historical fantasy novel. That's, you know, it, that's where it would sit amongst other books like it in that section. We chose to analyze this as a mixture of the horror content genre and the worldview internal genre. And we're going to get into why in a second, but I'm really curious your initial reactions hearing that we analyze this as a horror content genre. So let us know in the chat because we debated this four days. And while people share that in, in the chat, I'll also talk about the commercial genres because another thing that Sven and I chatted about was when I mean, you look at something on Amazon, it will rank in historical fantasy novel, but I really like historical fiction and Savannah does not enjoy historical fiction as much. So, well, pause, because it's not that I don't like yes. it. I just would not, okay. it. I would not gravitate towards it. So if I were, if I didn't know anything about V.E. Schwab or what she's capable of writing, because I came to her from her other books. I would have been like historical fiction. Don't know about this. So it's, right. it's funny. Uh, we were talking about this. Right. Well, and just because because of what you just said, Savannah, her other books don't really, I would probably wouldn't label them in this historical fantasy no. category. Would you agree with that? Yeah, not at all. So it was interesting to see it listed in that um, versus just a fantasy novel. It's kind of the subcategory in the fantasy. So I see a lot of people are saying, I would have thought it was more fantasy, not horror. So again, fantasy is the commercial genre. So that's, okay. we know there's going to be fantastic or supernatural elements in it, but what type of content or what kind of journey are we going to be on from start to finish? What changes? What's at stake? So let's talk okay. about this a little more and maybe this will clear it up. We chose horror because horror stories explore what it means to possibly have a fate worse than death. And Addie has promised her soul to an evil entity who cannot be reasoned with. So that is our first, our first inkling. Then Luke appears randomly at first, just on anniversaries. Then he kind of comes and goes at will. And his power is revealed over time. These are two genre conventions of the horror content genre. And then in the climax, Addie has to express courage and selflessness in the face of fear. And this is kind of that key scene of the horror genre where the protagonist is at the mercy of the antagonist and she has to summon that courage and selflessness despite the fear. Also, okay. horror stories ask, how do we maintain the safety in our lives, our homes, and our grip on reality when we are victimized by a manifestation of our deepest fears? And Luke is a manifestation of Addie's deepest fears. He's the only one that remembers her. 
And we know from the very beginning, she does not want to live such a quote unquote small life where only one person remembers her. So he's a literal manifestation of that. Thing you want to add here, Abigail? Yeah, I will just add that I don't normally, as when you think about horror genre or horror stories, I don't usually uh, gravitate towards those. I don't usually pick them up, but I am obsessed with this one. This is where it's really interesting to think about the difference between traditional horror, when you're thinking about traditional horror, that would both be categorized as fantasy and, I mean, as commercial and content. And what we, why we debated about this one so much is because ultimately when you're looking at it as a writer, when you're looking at it from a structure standpoint, and what are some key conventions? What are obligatory scenes? What are some key ideas, big takeaways from the genre? It's ideal to be able to select a content genre in the sense that this is ultimately the genre that drives the big picture. And I think one of the reasons why I love The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue so very much is because while it does have, and I would, I would support that it is the content genre of horror, it is so tightly woven and layered with other genres. The love story in here is undeniable. The internal story in here is undeniable. And there's in the society, we talked, we debated a lot. We almost picked society actually as the content genre over horror. There are complications of various genres on both an external and an internal level that are so tightly woven from prose to content itself, to the big ideas itself that made it so difficult to actually identify what the content genre is. And when Savannah yeah. says that we were debating about this for days, we were. We're yeah. a long time, constantly yeah. spiraling. Which and is the best pick? The truth is, I said days, I meant weeks. We were really debating this for weeks. I just didn't want to say it. Gina is saying, what are the other genres we debated? And I'll answer that in a second. And also, we're getting a lot of great questions about genre. Sanchelle mm -hmm. says, could it be a combination of horror and romance where we're meeting all the plot points? Nick says, could there be a combination? So yes to all of these. Uh, you do want to pick one that is your main content genre. And it that really relates back to what's at stake. Gina, we debated, is it society that would relate to that kind of, she needs to take back her personal power because the patriarchy's got her down. And, you know, that type of storyline, there's obviously romance. There's a lot going on, right? But what is at stake? And you yeah. guys answer before we do. Let me know what is at stake throughout the entire story, because this is ultimately what we came back to. You'd help on knowing stakes. Think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So essentially, what does a person need? And what in those categories is most at stake for Addie? Yeah. And Liv's saying is where do these content genres come from? Go look at Sean Coyne's Story Grid book or Robert McKee's Story. Those are two great resources. Terry says Addie's soul is at stake. So that's where we landed because that is, that's true. That's what's at stake. If you think about it, love is not really at stake. She's not questioning or she is trying to hold on to Henry a little bit, but it's not. That's not what we're necessarily reading to. I mean, we kind of are reading towards the climax for that, but it's not as at stake as her soul and her soul weighs more on that hierarchy of needs. Yeah. And to, to back that up a little more, I think when you think about love as a content genre, ultimately we're striving towards this idea of will the two main characters get together in the end? Will they have an intimate relationship? And Addie actually isn't even really looking for love defined in the beginning when she makes that deal, she wants freedom to do as she pleases. You know, she says, I want to love or not love. She even says that, right? And then 
in the end, she does make a sacrifice for Henry, but really that sacrifice is made out of love. It's not necessarily to save the relationship for me. And then, of course, like there's the whole complicated dynamic of the love story between Luke and Addie. So there's all that factor. But I don't think that her goal throughout the story is to gain an intimate relationship. I think it's to best Luke and save her soul. Yeah. Somewhat. Louise is asking for the resources again. So I'm just typing those and putting them in the chat. We will also mm -hmm. put those on the replay page, but let me just type this one. Okay. So it's Story Grid by Sean Coyne or Story by Robert McKee. Those, those are both great resources mm -hmm. for this idea of content genres. But yeah, I think this is really interesting because what you'll see later, one of the reasons why we really think this story works is because of how well it blends genres. And then we're going to also go through the plot structure and maybe we'll see a little bit more how that works to the horror genre. And I'm just reading this comment. So let's see. Diana says, ultimately, her soul is starved in her human life until Henry, she can't connect. So I think her soul, it's really interesting because her soul's at stake in many different ways. It's at stake literally if she can't leave a mark or make connections. I mean, you could say her soul's at stake that way, right? So I don't know. It's just really interesting. We had a really hard time deciding on this, but here's where we landed. Let us know what you guys think. I'm also curious if you guys think this story is commercial fiction, literary fiction, or upmarket fiction. So let us know in the chat what you guys think. Where does Addie LaRue fit? Okay, and so everyone's saying upmarket. We agree with you guys. That's where we landed as well. I mean, that's part of why Abigail and I both really like this book is because it does so much with the external and the internal. The words are beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, anyway, we're going to keep going because we have so much more to go through, but keep questions coming if you guys have them. So I'm going to talk through the plot. And this is our second big question. What is the story really about? And Addie LaRue, we know it's about a young French woman in 1714. She makes a deal with the devil, if you want to call him that, that makes her immortal, but curses her to be forgotten by everyone she meets except Henry. So this is like the big picture of the story. But it's also about more than that. So it's about what it means to make your mark on the world and what someone might give or sacrifice in order to feel free and live a meaningful, authentic existence. It's also about having courage and perseverance in the face of fear and just everyday life. So there's a lot going on, which I think we all felt, right? It's not just about this girl that's immortal. It's about a lot of deeper stuff. Anything to add there, Abigail? No, I think you're doing a great job. Okay, so we have basically a tie here. Is it cautionary or prescriptive? 52% said cautionary. I'm going to share this on the screen. And 48% said prescriptive. So that is basically a tie. Very interesting. Abigail's laughing. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah. Oh, I just think that's so interesting. <laughs> this is our, how we felt yesterday. We well, didn't know. Yeah, I mean, this is why I'm laughing. Because here's the thing. If I were to toss my quote into this, I also think it's prescriptive. Because... I also have faith that Addie is going to figure out how to outwit Luke in the end. And I think that that will give her back what she lost. Yeah, what she lost. Exactly. Thank you for yeah, the <laughs> What she lost. And I think that across the course of these 300 years, she really has learned to value what is truly meaningful to her. And I think that that's given her new perspective and appreciation on every aspect of importance in life. Yeah. So I see it as prescriptive. However, this is what Savannah and I were debating. 
what does that mean? That it's okay to make a deal with the devil? <laughs> yeah. We went back and like, forth about this too. I was like, that's a cautionary message. Yeah. I don't think that most people will say, yes, make the deal with the devil. What's interesting about Addie is that she actually admits that if she were even given the deal again, she would make it. Because in the beginning of her story, despite all the suffering and pain she goes through, being forgotten constantly day in and day out and having to scrap and and claw for every ounce of living, she knows that if she were to have not made the steal and married out of obligation and been trapped into a life that she would have found probably way more painful than actually even being forgotten, that she would have lost her soul there anyway. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It's truly a best had choice in that situation. Yeah. The next big picture question is who's telling the story? We think this is an omniscient narrator because the narrator can move through time and comment on the past and the future. So an example of this is on page 145. Seven years from now, Addie will see a puppet be a puppet show being put on in a Paris square, a curtain cart with a man behind, hands raised to hold aloft, the little wooden figures and their limbs dancing up and down with twine. And she will think of this night, this dinner. So this is an omniscient narrator saying in the future she will see this. And when she does, she'll think of this dinner. Anything to add there, Abigail? Just the omniscient is really hard as a point of view to write. You have to spend a lot of time mastering this. And if you are going to take on the task of an omniscient narrator, you have to really master a story of voice because you are having this omniscient narrator. But that doesn't mean that you can detach from characters. Yeah. So you have to figure out really mastery level. So if this is where you want to go, make sure that you're reading mastery novels that do this. Yeah. We also had a question. Um, somebody asked in the submit a Q&A or question form. They noticed that the point of view, because we do follow Addie very closely and also Henry. So it can sometimes feel like third person limited, but it, I think it is third person omniscient. But somebody asked, why do we think she chose to dip into Henry's close to the middle of the book? And my two cents on that quickly is just that we couldn't know too much about Henry too soon because then that would spoil what we find out his secret is. But we also needed his backstory. So it's probably a balancing act for her to pull that off. And I will say that when you have the scenes with Henry, this is something that is really important. If you do decide to shift in some sort of close view, you don't do it because you can't figure out how else to say something. You do it because it's still moving the story forward yeah. just in a different light. So it, it can't just be just because. It has to still have purpose and intention. Yeah. And usually it's like who has more at stake in that moment. That's what you want to be your point of view. So we're going to do something really fun. I broke down every single scene or ch- I'm sorry, chapter, because I wanted to see where the bulk of the words were. But here's what I learned. The 2014 present timeline with Henry from Addie's point of view, is about 43.5% of the story. The past timeline where she's, you know, in the 1600s to the 1980s is also 43.5%. So that, it was weird because it felt that way to us. And I was actually shocked that I got confirmation that they were pretty even because normally when it feels this way, we're wrong. You know, it's like, oh no, this one's 90% of the story and this one's not. So We were pleasantly surprised by that. And then Henry's little blip into the past is 13%. So we're not going to break this one down, but we can talk about it later if you guys want. 
The next big question is, which character should we care about the most? So we instantly know Addie's our girl on page one in chapter one. And we empathize with her in both timelines because in the beginning of the 1700s or 1600s, she wants to make her own choices and be free. We relate. We want the same for her and for ourselves. In 2014, she's been lonely for 300 years and she wants human connection. So again, we relate and we want her to find happiness. We pulled these little slides just to show what their goal is, what conflict they face. The goal for Addie is at first she wants autonomy. She wants to be free to make her own choices about her life. And then after the deal, she wants to be remembered. The conflict she faces is that she's stubborn internally. Obviously, the external conflict is Luke and people not remembering her. But this stubbornness is sometimes a gift or an obstacle, depending on how we're looking at it and how she uses it. So we have a question for you guys. We're wondering, did Addie change and does she have a character arc? Let us know in the chat. We're going to keep going. Then Luke, his goal is to collect souls because that's his nature. And specifically, he wants Addie. At first, he just wants her because she makes a deal. And then he finds her interesting. So he wants to actually like possess her in a different way. And then his conflict is that Addie's stubborn, but also he thinks he loves Addie, but he's really just infatuated and he can't understand love like a human would. So this causes problems for him. We're also curious to know if you guys think he changed. So I don't see any answers in the, in the chat, but that's okay. We're going to keep going. Let's see. Gina says, I feel like she grows, but mostly into what she wanted to become. She still doesn't want to give up her freedom. So yeah, we thought, you know, she finds meaning in life, but it's not this huge arc of change. She changes and affects other people around her, which is interesting. Then Henry, at first, Henry is resigned to live out his last year on Earth because we know he made a deal for 12 months. And then he meets Addie and she makes him want to live. So that is his change. His conflict is his curse makes it hard to have an authentic relationship until he meets Addie. And then when he meets Addie, it's even harder to deal with his curse because he wants to live. So we were also curious, did you guys see a change in Henry? Because we did. We thought that he found a lot of meaning and he went from wanting to jump off a roof to wanting to live. That's a pretty big deal. Let's see. Luke seems to have a change, but I don't know if I believe it. Does he love her or does he just want to find a new way to collect soul? So that's this is why this book is such a great like upmarket book, because we could talk about this for 10 days. A lot of comments coming in the chat. The next question, where does the story take place and when? We kind of talked about this. I won't go too deep, but basically we have two main time periods. The first from 1698 to 1984, which is the past. And then the second is in 2013, 2014. And then we go all around Europe with Addie in the past, but we stay mostly in New York in the present. Pretty easy answer there. Question number six, how should we feel about what's happening in the chapter, in the first chapter, but also the big picture? Ideally, your first chapter would speak to the emotion that we're going to get in the big picture. And right away, we care about Addie. We feel sorry for her. We're concerned. We wonder why this happened. Once she meets or once she makes the deal and meets Henry, we feel concerned. We feel like this is probably not going to work out the way she wants, but we're hopeful just like she is. She did a good job tapping on those emotions. But I think even in addition to that, we really are rooting for Addie because she is an embodiment of anyone who has been suppressed by circumstances that are out of their control. Yeah. You know, Addie is... Her life is trapped by the patriarchy. In the 1700s, she's being forced to do something that she doesn't want to do. She doesn't want to live this life and she has no control over it, which is hence why she wants freedom. And then even when she makes the deal with Luke, he is an embodiment of patriarchy, right. still trapping her. So even if you are someone who has not been subject of, 
of the system of patriarchy and being suppressed in that way. I think that is universal because there are, you know, obviously, and very unfortunately, so many groups of people that have been suppressed in some way, in some point in, in their life or for the entirety of their life that can relate to this emotion of feeling imprisoned. Well, and also and feeling like you have no control over your life, you know? Yes. And that concludes the clip that we pulled from part of our last Book Notes book club discussion, which featured the book, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. What you just heard, again, was a first chapter deep dive analysis of the first chapter of The Invisible Life of the Addie LaRue, looking at the small picture, the scene structure, as well as pieces of how the first chapter set up big expectations for the big picture itself. Of course, in the actual book clubs, these are two-hour discussions, so there's a lot more than just a first chapter deep dive analysis, but we wouldn't want to share the whole discussion because that wouldn't be fair for those attendees. I do hope that you got a lot out of this episode, and if you enjoy this first chapter deep dive analysis, check out the other first chapter deep dive analysis episodes on LitMatch. I really do believe it's the reason why I do them, that these will help you learn how to read like a writer and also really how to zero in on those first pages. Now, of course, if you're going to hook an agent and you're going to get an agent to offer you representation, it needs to be more than the first pages that excel at the writing craft, at storytelling. But first pages, there's a reason why an agent or any reader puts down a book or continues reading with those first pages. You have to nail your story and hook your reader on those first pages as early as page one, if not sentence one. I hope that these exercises and these analysis are giving you an opportunity to see what might be hooking an audience, what might be engaging and hooking readers of your genre or of any genre. And I do want to take a quick moment to thank you for being here for Lit Match. Thank you for supporting this podcast. And thank you for continuing to come back and listen to these episodes. And a special thank you to anyone who has taken a quick one to two minutes to rate and review the show or who have spread the word on social media, on word of mouth to other writing friends about this podcast and how I am trying to help you learn how to blend passion with business by learning about the publishing industry and mastering the submission process and the writing process. If you haven't had a chance to rate and review the show, I so would appreciate any time that you could take to do that. Until next time, happy writing. And if you're in the query trenches, I say this every week, continue to persevere. Keep reevaluating and looking at your query letters, at your manuscript, as long as you don't give up on your story, if you keep working to make your manuscript the best it can be, even if that means shelving your current manuscript for a new manuscript and pitching a new manuscript and coming back to that one maybe in your future career, I do believe that you can, with perseverance and resiliency, write the best manuscript possible and hook your dream literary agent. I cannot wait to hear when you sign with your dream agent and celebrate your book when it comes out.